Okay, let's pray. God, I thank you for, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that's living and active. God, I thank you for preparing our hearts in worship. But I just thank you for Christopher. I thank you for the, the word that he's bringing. God, I thank you for a, a man who's a good steward of, of the word, his love for you, um, and his, yeah, I just thank you for his humility and his willingness to spend the time to, to seek the Lord, to hear what you're saying. And we just prepare our hearts um, to be open and available to you, Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that you said you lead us into all truth. So God, we just pray today. We just ask you directly, Holy Spirit, what do you have for us in this message? We're open um, to receive God, I just thank you. Yeah, I just thank you for this medicine that he's about to feed us. Um, and we just thank you that you're the one who delivers it. You're the one who brings it alive in our heart and in our lives. And we carry it with us throughout this week. So, God, we just pray a blessing on Chris as he serves us the word. God, I just, I just pray a blessing on this community as we come to, to want to be closer to you. God, I thank you that you filled this community with your Holy Spirit. God, we just rejoice that we get to know you more. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Shane, I prayed that I was humble. Just, just want that to sink in for a second. Um, so we've been moving through Acts as a church, and uh, I've been assigned Acts 7, which is a, uh, a long chapter, and I'm going to actually read the whole thing. So if you want to open your Bibles or Google Acts 7, I'll read it out loud. not going to preach the whole thing because none of y'all have time for that, but um, we'll preach something out of it. So, Acts 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. 
And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deed. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel, seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who is wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for you a prophet like me for your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led let us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his hands, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So part of the reason why I wanted to read that whole passage is because hearing the prophetic takes work. That's a long passage, and it's kind of rambling. And, um, and it takes a lot for us modern people to slow down enough to be able to hear words from prophetic people. A few years ago, I was uh, helping out at a campus ministry at Brown University, and um, I was helping out with the leadership. There was a transition of leadership. They were going from being um, led by campus ministers, actually John, to being student-led. And so I, being the now campus minister, um, preached the first message of the year, and I actually preached on Acts 7 the stoning of Stephen. And my message, I don't know if you guys remember it. You might have blocked it out in some traumatic part of your brain, but my message was kind of like, you know, take on the courage of Stephen and you can win your campus for Christ. Anthony's laughing at me because he remembers something. Um, But the reality is no one really talks like that in real life, right? Um, That's not how real people talk. (laughs) 
And, and I think we often have more in common with the Pharisees and religious leaders than we do with the Stephen we read in this chapter. So with that said, I'm going to share with you three aspects of religious people that I see in this story so that we might examine ourselves. And when the religious people come to our church, we'll know what's going on. Um, All right, so point one, religious people shut out prophetic voices. When we think of the prophetic, we tend to think along charismatic lines. Um, When you think of the prophetic, you might think of someone reading your mail, you know, telling you some hidden sin that no one else knows about. Uh, Maybe they're giving you a prediction for the future. It's kind of a do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do situation, you know? I don't know. Maybe I kind of grew up in more charismatic streams, so when I think of prophetic, I kind of think along those lines sometimes, but I think we need a wider definition of what the prophetic is. Um, I want our working definition of prophetic voice, and I love charismatic prophecies, It's like a shortcut to God's will for your life. But the reality is life is complicated and that doesn't happen all the time. So for our working definition of prophetic voice, I want us to think of it as anything used by God to convey a message to his people. Anything, any person that God wants to use in your life to communicate to you because God's always trying to speak to us. Scripture is filled with examples of God using a whole host of strange people and even things to communicate with his family. In the book of Numbers, there's a story where God speaks through a beaten donkey to open the eyes of a prophet named Balaam. You guys know that story? This one's kind of wild. The prophet Ezekiel baked his own poop as a kind of performance art warning to those rebelling from Yahweh. You guys know that one? I work with young people here at the church, so I I love the stories about poop, because young people think poop is funny, and I had to throw that in there. Adults don't. Um, Taken on their face, donkeys talking and prophets pooping, and Stephen rambling for 60-odd verses seem like strange places to find God. But what distinguishes Christ's people from religious people is their ability to shut their mouths, open their eyes and their ears, and to see God in everything and to hear God in obscure things. Religious people look for God in religious things. God's people look for God in everything. Let's role play how an emotionally healthy Pharisee, a religious person, might have approached Stephen's message. I'm feeling intense emotions right now. I need a break. I need to go for a walk around the synagogue. This Stephen does not have half of my qualifications. I have labored in and for this temple, and yet he is calling my labor a crock, a sham. That makes me feel really angry. Why would that make me feel angry? What about my identity is being challenged here that I would want to respond with anger. 
Anger is a secondary emotion. I know that, but I'm feeling flooded right now. Perhaps they would have journaled. Some of you guys are journalers. Perhaps they would have reflected and listened to Stephen's words and pondered them, sought the good in them. Instead, they shut him up with rocks until he could speak no more. Now, you might think it's ridiculous to picture these religious leaders journaling and in quiet reflection. But there's a king in the Old Testament that did exactly this when he was confronted with God's prophecy for him. There is an alternative to the religious spirit, and it's called a humble and contrite heart. When David, the king of Israel, was approached by the prophet Nathan with his sin, he responded in tears. He heard the prophecy as a prophecy for his life, and he received the rebuke with contrition. Would you create in me a clean heart, O God? He journaled prayers like, wash me white as snow. And those are just two of the ones we know of. A lesser king like Ahab would have thrown Nathan in jail if he had been confronted with such a message. The church today needs listeners like David, people who are earnestly seeking God's truth in all corners of their world. I understand not everyone is righteous like Nathan or Stephen, but God is constantly trying to speak to us. If we were only still enough, quiet enough to listen, away from the noise of social media and podcasts and Netflix and a whole host of other fun distractions, good distractions sometimes, still distractions. Perhaps your transgender neighbor has something to tell you about the sinful effects of trauma on the body and on the soul. Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps Black Lives Matter is an invitation for you to view the world through a particular group of marginalized people. Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps your homophobic coworker has some history of buried abuse that keeps getting deeper and deeper underground every time he is called a bigot. Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps your uncle with the MAGA hat really has something to say about how difficult it is to run a small business in America. Maybe, maybe not. But we can't hear and receive God's truth when we are already thinking up a rebuttal or looking for the perfect stone to throw. Religious people shut out prophetic voices. Let's not be religious people. Religious people move in mobs. The trial and execution of Christ bears a striking resemblance to the trial and execution of Stephen. In both cases, those in positions of power used their influence to destroy men they disagreed with. There was no trial by jury for either Jesus or Stephen. There was no due process or court of law. There was certainly no nuance in the verdict and sentencing. In the passion of Jesus Christ, the religious leaders acted upon their hatred by inciting the Jewish people to pressure Pilate the ruling Roman authority in Jerusalem, to move swiftly in execution. In the stoning of Stephen, the religious leaders move as their own judge, jury, and executioner. In modern times, we have a similar way of executing justice. Social media, for one, 
is a cesspool of mob violence. It highlights our tendency to play upon our worst assumptions and to turn people against other people. On December 4th, 2016, Edgar Madison Welch entered the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Restaurant in Washington, D.C. on a valiant rescue mission. Armed with an AR-15, a semi-auto pistol, and a knife, Welch began searching the premises like a SWAT team member looking for hostages. The hostages in this case were trafficked children in a celebrity cult sex ring, and the hostage taker was none other than Hillary Clinton, the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. Clinton had been abusing children through satanic rituals in the basement of the pizza parlor for years. Woke some of you guys up. Uh, of course, none of this was true. Almost none of it. Welch's bloodlust had been brought to a boil by trending fake news reports on Twitter and Facebook and the popular conspiracy disc, jo jo disc jockey Alex Jones and his InfoWars radio show. Millions of Americans had bought into the lie that Hillary Clinton wasn't just another corrupt politician. She was killing innocent life and she needed to go away. Of course, I don't bring this up to highlight an issue with modern American conservatism. Not at all. A little foray into Twitter is all one needs to see things like U.S. senators being called white supremacists because of their support for the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. The point is this, Welch's stupidity highlights the base instincts in all of us to get swept up into mob violence and groupthink. Mobs are an effective means to destroy those we hate. It's part of our sin nature to deride and ostracize those we disagree with. We have a tendency to play God. We do this not just toward politicians, but toward people in our lives, close relationships. We implore our spouses and our children to join the mob of our violent anger when someone disappoints us. When we have a disagreement with another person, we want to vent about the person to someone else. Really what we are doing is building a case toward another person. Jesus never did this. Often, the greater number of people who began to follow Jesus, the more likely he was to find solitude. At one point, the apostles had been performing all kinds of ministry with all kinds of people, and they reported the news of all the stuff they were doing back to Jesus. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. This is in Mark 6. I'm going to read through it quick. But then crowds followed Jesus and his disciples, and they were unable to be alone. So Jesus miraculously fed the crowds. He cared for them. But then scripture says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus approaches crowds and mobs that want to follow him and support him with a hesitancy. This is so different than American Christianity. When we get people into our churches, the first thought is often, now how do we use these people to get more people? 
I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of that, but it feels really icky. It's not a good feeling. Under the guise of the Great Commission, it's as if discipleship is a multi-level marketing scheme. If our first thought is often, how do we use these people to get more people? Jesus' first thought is, how do we feed these people? And then how do we get alone to be fed by God? That's how Jesus approaches mobs and crowds. How different would our church be if we were similarly differentiated? If our identity was not directly linked to whether people liked us or agreed with us? The Pharisees killed Jesus and Stephen because they didn't fit in with their tribe. Their way of existing was to force allegiance or ostracize, they being the Pharisees. The Jesus way is to love others and be grounded in the Father's love, regardless of the direction that the mob moves. And then finally, this is the final point. Religious people place their faith in religious practices. One of Stephen's most direct attacks was an attack on temple life itself. Uh, This is verse 47 in Acts 7. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? If we skip a few more verses and insults from Stephen, we read that the Pharisees or the religious leaders, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever noticed in yourself that when the things you work hardest at are challenged, it makes you the angriest? You ever notice that? <laughs> Me too. The religious leaders had spent their lives overseeing sacrifice and studying Torah and organizing the polity of the temple, the, struct- the political structure of the temple. When Stephen pulled their Jenga block of God dwelling in their church, it was as if their whole life had come tumbling down. It's a funny thing how when our religious practices are questioned, we grit our teeth with animalistic rage. And I'm not just talking about Bible reading or, you know. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Human history is a history of people seeking meaning and value in their work and in their relationships, ultimate meaning and value in their work and their relationships. I know for me, when, when I don't work, sometimes for, if we're visiting family, my wife's from Hawaii, it's, it's a really tough place to visit family. Um, if, but if I'm out of work for like two, three weeks, I start to feel really weird in my own skin. I start to feel like there's something wrong with me start to feel like, like shame. Just, um, anyway, you can imagine how hard it is for people, you know, facing homelessness when jobs are hard to find, um, how hard it must be. G- when, so the reality is when Jesus invades our life, 
our temples. He says, trust me with your meaning and your value now. I ascribe righteousness, the opposite of shame, to you with my very mouth. Now, God's word, which kind of goes back to the prophetic thing, it has power. We read in the Bible that God created the world with his mouth, with his words. So my interpretation of the New Testament is what Christ did at the cross now enables righteousness or goodness to be ascribed to us by the power of the Spirit. Um, But as a Christian, I still feel my teeth grit and grind when my wife says, you don't listen to me at all. The reason why is because I worked so hard at listening. So hard. But I think the the bigger reason why is because like the religious leaders in first century Jerusalem, I find an inordinate amount of my value in the things that I do, not in the things that Christ did for me at the cross. If we are going to be a church in which people find their true value and meaning, we have to be a cross-centered community. My trans neighbors will not be one to Christ because I work hard at my marriage or elevate my family to a higher financial life. 1950s America is not bringing about revival in America. They will be one to Christ when I humbly lay down my life for my wife and my child and gladly donate my money in acts of generosity because Christ is enough for me. There's a difference there. I no longer find my joy through sexual release or feeling comfortable in my body or in financial security. We must find our joy in the same manner as Stephen once did. Face a glow, looking into the eyes of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing to have this time and space with family. Thank you. Thank you for your word, which just means the truth of who you are and who we are coming directly with us. John 1 says the word dwelt with us. You set up camp with us. You dwell intimately with us. Speak to us now. Make us whole, make us healthy as we look upon the love in your face. Father, we love you and we thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray.